Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning as we continue through our study of Colossians, looking this morning at Colossians chapter 2 and focusing this morning just on three verses, but I think three of the most powerful verses in all of the Bible. And I'm so excited that we have the chance to open this text this morning and work through it. There was a, a Monday morning this winter where I was headed into work, and right as I was to get in the car, I realized that one of my front tires on my car was very low. There's a gas station about a quarter of a mile from my house, so I figured right, I'll just go to the gas station and I'll give it some air. Before, as I was getting to the gas station, as I pulled in, I realized this tire needs more than some air. This tire needs to be changed, right? I was, I was all the way down. But I had good parents. I've changed a lot of tires in my life before. This is not a big deal. I'm a man. I can change this tire. This will not defeat my Monday. So I go out and I get out the spare tire and the lug nuts and get the jack set up. And I go and I take the lug nuts off. And then I come to a specific lug nut. And I had never had a flat tire on my car before. I've had it for a few years. And it's one of those anti-theft ones where you have to have a special key for it. And I think, well, interesting, I didn't see that. So I go through and I pull my car apart, looking for the key in the back, underneath, in the, every glove box, every door, it's nowhere to be found. I'm like, I just need to change this tire. How hard can that be? So I call the place that I bought the car from and I ask them and they said, well, did you check the glove box? And I'm like, did I check the glove box? Like, of course I checked the glove box. I'm like, well, I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you. And I'm like, well, you can tell me to come change my tire. That's what I need. I need someone to change my tire. So I finally, I call someone, let them know I need a key to change the tire. And they show up and they get down, they get their tools over and they sit down by the tire and they look at me and they go, well, do you have the key for the tire? <laughs> That's why you're here. And you go, oh, I, I can't do it if I don't have the key. It should have been a simple change. Something easy that turned into multiple phone calls, an hour long, a huge ordeal so I could finally change the tire. See, often change in our lives doesn't go according to plan. We try and change things in our lives, but it doesn't always go how we think it should go. There's some things in life that are relatively easy to change. If you wanted to change your hair, you could change it. You can cut it. You can get extensions. You can change the color. You can do just about anything. If you want to change your clothes, you could go out and purchase new clothes. External changes are relatively easy for us to make. There's other changes that are a little harder to bring about, though, in our lives. Have you ever tried to break a bad habit? Maybe it's with food or with drink or with technology or, or some other way, and those changes can be a little bit harder. Have you ever tried to change your response to be more patient, more kind, more gentle, less angry? We know that's, that's a little bit harder than changing our appearance. But some things are impossible to change. Have you ever tried to change another person? Maybe the person that you married thinking, oh, I'll change them someday. Yeah, that, that didn't work out so well, did it? That we can just change people. Have you ever tried to change your past? You can't do it. You can't go back and change some of the mistakes and the regrets that you have. And this morning, we're going to think of change. And as we open to Colossians chapter 2 this morning, I want us to look at and to realize that only Jesus brings the change that we need in our lives. 
The real change, the true change that we need in our lives, only Jesus can bring it to us. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles that we're here in the pew, it's on page 984. And we're going to be looking this morning at Colossians 2 verses 13 to 15. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. The first change that Jesus brings is seen here in verse 13. It says this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. The first change that only Jesus can bring is from death to life. From death to life. That Jesus can take something that was spiritually dead and only Jesus can provide the spiritual life that you and I need. Paul writes here that that these people, the the believers in in Colossae, they were dead. They were dead in their sin. They were condemned. They deserved judgment and they had no hope because of this. And Paul gives them two reasons that they found themselves in this state of spiritual death that are true for us today if we are apart from Jesus. Two reasons that they were spiritually dead. The first is they were dead because of their trespasses. Because of the trespasses right there. Trespasses is is a word that could be literally translated just missteps. It refers to actions. It's another word that the Bible used very commonly with sin. And because of the acts that we have committed... The things that we have done have put us to spiritual death and separated us from God. See, sometimes in our world today, we don't like to use the word sin. We certainly don't like to use the word trespasses. I can't remember the last time I heard that outside of a church. And we can kind of justify ourselves and make ourselves feel a little bit better. Like we don't have a lot of sin in our lives. We don't don't really struggle with this. Well, think about just some of the actions that you've done this last week that were sinful. Some of the the things that you've said, the things that you did that you realize, man, that, that wasn't loving, that wasn't kind, that wasn't gracious towards others. But we not only commit sinful actions, what about your sinful thoughts? What about your thoughts? What if everything you thought about this week, every image was portrayed here on the screens in front of everyone to see? I think we all would be terrified because of what goes through our heads and what goes through our hearts, the sinful thoughts that we commit. And our sinful trespasses are so deep within us that sin even goes to our desires, that we can sometimes do the right thing for the wrong reason. We'll do the right thing so that we get the recognition, so that other people see us. And because of all of these trespasses, Paul says that you are dead in them. But not only are we dead in our trespasses, the second reason we are spiritually dead is there he says, in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. The uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, Paul is not likely here referring to their physical status, that they were uncircumcised, meaning that they would have been Gentiles, although most likely most of them were Gentiles. But he's referencing back here to this idea of spiritual circumcision that he just talked about two verses before in chapter 2, verse 11. 
So if you look back at verse 11, it says this, that in him, speaking of in Jesus, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so he's continuing this metaphor here in verse 13. And when he talks about the uncircumcision of our flesh, he's referring not to our physical status, but to our very sinful nature that is true of each and every one of us. That since Adam and Eve first sinned, recorded in Genesis chapter 3, that every single person who's been born into human history not only commits sinful actions, but sin has corrupted even our nature. And sin is not just what we do, but it's born into the world. It's who we are. It's part of who we are. But while we were dead and condemned in our sin, the change that Jesus brings says that God made alive together with him. That God can make us alive together with Jesus. Rather than facing condemnation, we now are transformed and we receive glorification and we have hope in the future because of the change that Jesus Christ can bring about in our lives. How do we know if we've experienced, if we have this new life in Christ? How do we know if we're here still dead in our sin or if we have life with Christ? I want us to think this morning just of a few different signs that we are alive in Christ. This isn't meant to be exhaustive, but I think these are true if we have been made alive in Christ. First, that we have a new heart. That God, when he has made us alive, gives us a new heart. It says in in Ezekiel that a new heart he will put in them and he will be their God and he will be, and we will be his people. Our new heart is continually sensitive towards sin in our lives. And this new heart that God places in the believer will feel an ongoing conviction of sin and wrongdoing in their lives. Simply put, if you feel in your life guilt and conviction, that is God working within you. The person who is spiritually dead, their sins do not grieve them unless it simply costs them something. If your sin only costs you because it has consequences, you may still be spiritually dead. But when we feel conviction of sin, it's because God has placed in us a new heart and we realize that our sin is actually separating us from God and that hurts and it grieves us. The second sign that we've been made alive in Christ is God gives us a new love, a new love that transforms our very lives. See, a love that doesn't just love the people who are easy to love or the people who are like us. But as Jesus says, a love that's without limitations, a love that has no qualifications for who it should go to. You have enemies, love them. People persecute you. Jesus says we're to love them. And as we see the love of God in our lives, as we receive it, it starts to transform our very lives that we can love people who without God, God's help otherwise, we could not love. So not only do we have a new heart and a new love, but God also gives us a new focus. God gives us a new focus of our lives when we are alive in Christ. That without Christ, when we are spiritually dead, the focus of our lives is basically all about ourselves. We live to please ourselves, our dreams, our desires, and our motives. 
But when Christ comes in and transforms a life and makes us alive, suddenly our lives are no longer about ourselves. And we start to care about the lost. We start to care about our family and our friends who are without Jesus. We start to care about the mission of the church. And our lives no longer become so much focused on ourselves, but focused on Jesus and the task that he's given us to carry out throughout the world. God takes something that's spiritually dead, and with Jesus, he makes it alive together with him. But the Bible is very clear that apart from Jesus, we are dead in our sin. Apart from Jesus, we are dead in our sin. If you've ever had to read a map, you know that one of the most important things when you read a map isn't just to find the destination of where you want to go, but first, it's to figure out where you are on the map. Right? It doesn't matter if you can find the end point. If you don't know where you are at, all of life will be thrown off and you will have no idea to get to where you want to go. This is why with, with technology, it's so easy nowadays, right? Because you hit one button and anywhere in the world, your map will zoom in to right where you are. Well, that's typically true of most everywhere that we live today, but it's not always true. And when it's not true, our lives can become disoriented and confused. This last year, I was down on the South Loop area and I needed to take an Uber back up to the north side. And so I was in an Uber, and this was one of those Uber drivers who he's just gonna follow the map, right? He's not gonna try and outsmart the traffic, take his own shortcuts. He's following wherever the map goes. And we're having a nice conversation and he's nice and relaxed until he takes a turn and next thing we know, we're in Lower Wacker Drive. And it was clear right away that he does not often take Lower Wacker Drive. And if you've ever used GPS on Lower Wacker Drive, you'll know it's not much help. It is not much help because suddenly your signal has disappeared. And this guy was looking at his phone suddenly more than the road and he was panicked. I'm like, does he think we're gonna come out in Michigan? Like, what is he? What is he so worried about? And I, I, I waited a few minutes, but I could tell he was kind of frustrated and confused till finally I helped him kind of guide out because I knew where we had gone. And, and he came out and finally we came back out and we were back on the map. And he knew where he was. And once you know where you are, you can know where you need to go. See, on the map of your spiritual journey towards God, the Bible paints a very clear picture. Without Jesus, you are dead. Without Jesus, you are dead in your sin. You may have thought, wow, I came to church today to get encouraged. What is this? Well, it's coming, so don't give up. But I just want you to know the reality of what the Bible says about where you are apart from Jesus. That you are dead in your sin. And that nothing that you can do can get you to the destination that you want to go. The change that you need in your life is a change that only Jesus can bring. Only Jesus brings the change that we need. The second change that Jesus brings in our lives is seen here in verses 13 and 14. <clears throat> Paul says this, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The second change that Jesus brings in our life is Jesus brings us from debtor to forgiven, from debtor to forgiven. 
that we owe a debt because of our sin, but in Jesus, all of our sin can be forgiven. It's, it's amazing here that he says that, that God has forgiven us all our trespasses, not part of them, not some of them, not he's forgiven some now when you have to do a certain thing, so in the future he'll forgive you more. But in the moment that Jesus comes into your life, all of your sin can be forgiven by God. To demonstrate this complete and definitive forgiveness, Paul uses two word pictures here in verse 14 to help us understand the status of us moving from debtor to forgiven. The first is he, he says this phrase, that God has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He's canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is language that they would have used in an everyday I owe you document. So I owe you something. And if I owe this to you, I have signed that I will keep my word and I will pay this back to you. And we owe God because we were created by God and for God. And this world was designed with God's laws in mind. We were created to fully give our allegiance and obedience to God. Meaning that every time we disobey, every time we do not give our full allegiance to God, we actually stack up a greater debt against ourselves. This IOU is not getting paid off. In fact, it's getting greater the more that we sin. And this document is stacking up against us. The record of debt is piling on. But in Jesus, that record of debt is actually canceled. It's canceled. It's crossed out. It's totally done for. It's ripped to shreds. It's set aside. It no longer has a bearing over those who are in Christ Jesus. He's canceled this record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Well, how did he do that? How could a God, a good God, a just God cancel it? This he set aside by nailing it to the cross, by nailing the sin, the record of sin, our debt, the payment that we owed God because of our sin. How is it paid for? It's nailed to the cross. See, when Paul talks about the cross, He's not here thinking of a wooden structure and that the nails going into a wooden structure are the significant thing. But the cross represents the whole crucifixion event of Jesus Christ. And he's not picturing an empty cross when he talks about the cross. He's picturing Jesus hanging on the cross. Your sin was forgiven when Jesus was nailed to the cross. When Jesus was nailed to that cross, forgiveness was purchased for each and every one of us who believes in him. That Jesus is the only one who could bring us that forgiveness. See, this time of year is graduation season. And I know this next week or two, there will be several high schools that will have their graduation here at this church. And many of you have probably gone to college graduations and high school graduations, probably even the last few weeks, many of us have. See, and there's an interesting person at a graduation who has an interesting role, and that's the person who has to give the graduation speech. Because no one goes to a graduation because of the person giving the speech. You go because you know a graduate. 
right? You don't pick your graduations based on the best speaker on where you want to go. And so most of the time, the people who give graduation speeches, it's kind of like, hey, hurry up and get it over till our friend or relative can walk across the stage and we can go get out of here. That's a typical attitude towards a graduation speaker. But a graduation speaker a few weeks ago made news for something that happened during his graduation speech. Robert F. Smith, um, who's a, a well-known um, businessman, was speaking at Moorhead College. And this college had 396 graduating seniors. And during his graduation speech a few weeks ago, he talked to them about the importance of generosity, of giving back to others. And then he said, which none of the graduates knew, that today, that day, he said, I am now paying off all of your student loans. Every single senior here, I am paying off your student loans, an amount of approximately $40 million of student debt wiped clean, just like that. From the reaction of the students, you can see um, they were not disappointed. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, man, I went to the wrong college. Why didn't they get this guy at my graduation from college or grad school? Come on. My, my, I have no debt. It's wiped away. You can see the joy the awe that's overcome the full emotion on display in their lives. One graduate who owed approximately $200,000 in student debt said this in an article. He said, now I don't have to live off of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. This is no hate to those of you who live off of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but apparently it's not his goal. He says this, I was shocked. My heart dropped. We all cried. In the moment, it was like a burden has been taken off. Isn't just a little picture of what we experience when Jesus removes the burden of sin, that debt of sin from our lives. The cross is shocking that God would do that for us. It should make our hearts drop to see the generosity of God. It should move us to the core of our very being, and it certainly should feel like the greatest burden ever has been lifted off of us. This is what happens when we experience forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've experienced freedom from a significant debt in your life. Maybe you had a great student loan debt or credit card, or maybe you've paid off a mortgage. And you know the freedom that comes when that final bill is paid, when suddenly you know there's, you, can, you just sigh. That burden that was on your life for so long is gone, and there's such freedom to be experienced in it. My friends, there is freedom in our lives that's only found when we experience the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. See, sometimes we think, and the world would portray oftentimes following Jesus, Christianity as a rule about, as a religion about a lot of rules, a lot of things you got to do. Do this, don't do this. And we can see Christianity sometimes following Jesus as, man, it, it sounds just so restrictive. Like it's just stuff you can't do and you have to do this. But when you experience the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in your life, you realize that following Jesus is the most freeing thing in the world. Because that burden of sin, the inkling in your heart, that the wrongdoing that was in your life, that sin that's hanging over you, that's constantly with you, that's always there, when that is taken away 
and you experience the freedom of forgiveness in Jesus, there is no freedom like it. There is no freedom like it. And Jesus is the only one who can bring that freedom. Jesus is the only one who could bring that forgiveness. See, the requirements of fulfilling this IOU document that each of us owed to God was not a cash amount. Robert F. Smith could do this because he has billions of dollars, so he could pay off millions of loans. It doesn't matter on how much money we have. That's not what was needed to pay off our debt. Perfect and total obedience to God's law is what was required. And there's only one person who's ever been qualified to do that, and that's Jesus. That's why it's not enough if we went to the cross for someone else's sins, because we haven't kept that law perfectly. But Jesus has. And Jesus' full obedience fully qualifies him to take our place and to forgive our sins. And we can experience in Jesus the change from going to owing God a great debt that we couldn't repay, that no one could repay on our behalf, to being forgiven because Jesus pays that debt for us on the cross. The third change that Jesus brings is seen here in verse 15. It says this, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. I love that. The third change that Jesus brings in our lives is from defeat to triumph. Jesus can bring about in your life the change from defeat to triumph, triumph and victory in Jesus Christ. It says here that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, the spiritual powers that had power over us that could, that could defeat us because of the shame and the sin in our lives. They have no power anymore because Jesus has fully disarmed them. He has stripped them of all power that they could have and once had over us before we were with Jesus. But not only has Jesus stripped them of their power, it says here that he put them to open shame. Some translations say that he made a public spectacle of them. I love that, a public spectacle of these rulers and authorities. This word, this, this idea of open shame is only used one other time in the New Testament. And it's when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant and he, rather than divorcing her, divorcing her publicly, wanted to do it privately so that she would not be put to public humiliation and shame before other people. But the opposite is here. Jesus does put a public spectacle of his triumph and victory over these demonic powers and these demonic rulers. See, rather than the demonic rulers shaming you, they have been put to open shame. Rather than them accusing you, they have been shamed publicly. Meaning this, that if you are in Jesus Christ, they have no power over you anymore. They have no power over your life. You, sh you should not listen to their accusations. You should not listen to the lies that come from the evil one because they have been fully defeated and conquered by Jesus Christ through his death and through his resurrection from the dead. It says that Jesus has triumphed over them in him. 
that the resurrection is the proof of this triumph over every evil force that would stand against God in our world. One commentator puts it this way. He says, Paul is pulling out all the stops to make as clear as he can that God has removed any claim that the spiritual powers might have over us and that he has done so clearly and publicly. See, on the cross, Jesus forgave our sin and disarmed the authorities. And on, in the resurrection, Jesus put them to public shame, proclaiming his victory over evil, sin, and death. This idea of a triumphant victory and others being put to open shame, for those who received this letter, they would have immediately associated it with a parade and victory concept that they had 2,000 years ago. When a Roman general went out and fought and won a victory, he would come back to his hometown. And as he came back to his hometown, they would go out and they would greet this Roman general with a parade, a victory celebration, that he would ride in proclaiming his victory and his triumph. His soldiers and troops would march and ride behind him in victory. And then at the end, in shackles and chains, would be the prisoners that they had taken, putting them to open shame, publicly declaring that they have lost and that they were defeated. See, a few years ago, we had our own version of a victory parade here in Chicago. And a couple years ago, many of you were probably there. If not, you were probably caught up in the traffic of all the people, five million or so are the estimates, getting downtown to celebrate the Cubs' victory parade. One of the largest gatherings in human history, they say. Now, as, as you've seen, I'm sure, pictures and videos at the, at the Cubs parade, which is common of most victory parades, right, the, the buses roll through town. And the team is on the bus, the executives, their families, they have their trophies, they're waving to the crowd, and it's a great celebration of their victory. Now, can you imagine if with the five million people lining the streets at the Cubs parade, there was one or two more buses added on. And at the very back of those buses were the Cleveland Indians. <laughs> and they had to wear Chicago Cubs World Series champion t-shirts. They had a hat that said, finally, and they were waving flags with a big W on it for all the miles of the parade. Can you imagine the shame and the humiliation that that would have caused them? They were put to open shame. That's the picture of what Jesus has done to evil in our world. He's triumphed in his victory parade and he's put to open shame anything that would stand against him. In the resurrection, Jesus publicly and powerfully proclaims that there is nothing more powerful in this world than Jesus Christ, nothing. Sin may have some power over our lives, but it is not more powerful than Jesus. Your circumstances may have some power over you, but they are not more powerful than Jesus. Satan may have some power in this world, but he is not more powerful than Jesus. Your past may have some power over your present, but it is not more powerful than Jesus. Death may have some power over humanity, but it is not more powerful than Jesus. Jesus is the most powerful being in the world. He was publicly put to shame 
the evil forces that stood against him triumphing in the cross. And because Jesus has risen from the dead, you and I can be united to him, and we can also have that same victory over sin and evil and death. Because Jesus is the only one who can bring the change that we need. If we were to go back and to look at our lives this morning, I'm sure all of us have things in our lives that we wish we could change. Some small, some big. Regrets that we have, changes that we wish we could have made. I know for me, when I was thinking of, of a story of something that happened right after college came to mind, um, when I graduated from college and I needed an apartment here in Chicago, and I made the grave mistake of not visiting the apartment before I rented it, and I trusted the advice of two other 22-year-old guys. A mistake which I regretted and fortunately have never committed again. And after a few months in that house, as there have been lots of issues with the apartment, lots of break-ins both through our cars and lots of things stolen from our house as well, I looked back at my life and said, man, if I could change this, I would. I would have made a different decision. And we look back at our lives and we think, man, if I could have changed some things, I would. But we can't go back and change the past. So when we think of our lives and the change that we need, only Jesus brings the change that we need. Only Jesus brings the true change that you and I need in our hearts and in our lives. Many of us this morning have experienced that change, the transformational power of Jesus at work in your life. Can I just remind us this morning of the overwhelming gratitude that we are to have to God because of what he's done on our behalf? I don't know about you, but sometimes I get so tied up in some of the circumstances of life that Jesus hasn't changed that I forget all that he has changed for me. That apart from him, I would be dead in my sin, a debtor to, to sin, and that I would be experiencing defeat from my sin. But in Jesus, we have life. We are forgiven, and we have victory. And as a Christian, we have every reason to have such gratitude towards God. But many of you are here this morning, and you haven't experienced this change in your life. And when you think back to your past, you have lots of regrets. And if you were to put yourself on the spiritual map, and if you were honest with yourself, you may say, I still think I'm dead in my sin. I haven't placed my faith and trust in Jesus to make me alive. I'm still a debtor. I haven't been forgiven. I'm still feel, feeling defeated in life. I haven't experienced the triumph that God has for me. Today is the day that Jesus can change your life. Jesus can change your life today. He can make you alive. He can forgive you of your sin. He can give you a victory over sin and evil. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we finish. And if there's anyone here this morning, and I just want to pray for you as we close today. Anyone here this morning who says, I need that change in my life. I need Jesus to forgive me of my sin, to move me from death to life. 
If that's true of you this morning, you want to experience the changing power of Jesus with every head bowed and eyes closed, would you just quickly raise your hands so that I can pray for you this morning? Thank you. Anyone else, raise your hands so I can pray for you this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the power that changes our lives because of what Jesus has done for us. That on the cross, our sin was forgiven. In the resurrection, we have victory because of what Jesus has done for us. And if you raised your hands this morning in the quietness of this moment, would you just cry out to God? Would you ask him to change your life? Would you ask him to forgive your sin? Would you ask him to make you alive with Jesus? God, we thank you that in Jesus, we have the victory over sin and death. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.